Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast listeners and Dr. Corey Waller. Um, being joined today by Dr. Waller is uh, an incredible honor. You have an extensive kind of uh, academic and professional career generally. I know you just as a superb lecturer from trying to learn about addiction on YouTube, um, get a little free CME. And I was like, man, this guy, he, I get it. And that didn't take like as long as uh, it it usually does to go through something like you know the neurobiology of addiction. So I was like, I gotta I gotta get in touch with this guy. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. But before you know we uh, dive into this interview, this session, I like you you know to be able to present a little bit about your biography and you know we can say where you went to school or residency, but more importantly, because that stuff we can just list. What are you most proud of professionally? I, I think cur the curiosity that I've been able to maintain. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're given a, a, a big book of stuff we're supposed to know, and you memorize that stuff, and you take tests about it, and, and you apply it to patients that you see. Uh, but I think the key to really, one, loving your job for a long time and really kind of continually being good at it is maintaining a level of curiosity and continually asking that question, why? And I, in my late 40s, and at this point, most people are in cruise control in their job, and I, I, I'm looking for new stuff every day. And I, I really, so I think my biggest accomplishment ultimately is maintaining that curiosity of, you know, it's not like, oh, pain's interesting, but then you learn about the subcellular pharmacokinetics of the medications and what they do to the dorsal horn and how that works on um, a patient with chronic pain in a real applicable sense. So I, I think curiosity would be uh, the thing I'm most proud of is being able to maintain that despite having to read hundreds of pages of stuff a lot <laughs> to keep up with it. Yeah, well, curiosity is not necessarily a morally neutral uh, quality. Um, the I, I imagine is it is it got you into trouble? Like you started out in emergency medicine, you uh, seem to have kind of gotten more specific in your interests and also diverged a little bit from what I can read on uh, the internet about you. Well, the curiosity is, you know, there's a reason there's the uh, uh, the saying, the curiosity killed the cat, right? It's um, so you walk into a, uh, a field of medicine, whatever that is, whether it's internal medicine, family medicine, surgery, emergency medicine, and uh, there's a uh, kind of an algorithm of reality. There is, this is how we do it. And uh, when you start poking at it and saying, well, why do we do it that way? Why isn't it different? Why, why are we doing this? And you dig in and you lift the lid up and you recognize we really don't have a good answer for why we do it. So why don't we change how we do it? Uh, change um, is triggering for a lot of people, especially people who've done the same thing for 10 or 15 years. And when you say what they've been doing may, maybe can be done better, many people, especially in uh, medicine with the uh, kind of the thickest egos um, around, are gonna feel like you're coming after them. They're gonna feel like you, uh, what are you saying, I'm doing it wrong? I'm like, no, I'm, I just, I'm curious if we could do it better. And the answer is always yes. 100% of the time, the answer is yes, we could be doing it better. And I think that's the biggest piece that I would always tell students, residents, attendings, retirees in medicine, we can always do it better. And uh, if you question that, I question kind of the need for you to be in the field. Because this is, uh, this is a field that is constant change. 
And, uh, and if you're not willing to do that, then I worry about, uh, you know, some of the, the things that might be happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the phrase, ars longa vita brevis, um, art is long, life is short. It's uh, yeah. one of the things students studying Latin learn pretty early on, still kind of quoted here and there. I do it all the time because the, there's a media venture that grew out of inside the boards called Ars Longa Media. Um, but it's attributed to Hippocrates. It's art is long, life is short, and it's the art of medicine. It's, 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 it's inexhaustible, really, um, and it just keeps getting more inexhaustible, I suppose, because progress. Yeah, and, and I think long term, you know, what we find is there's so much to know, it can seem, you know, impossible. And the key is not to be like, well, you can't know everything. Sure. No, nobody can. But you can know everything you can know. Yeah. And that means you should be going after it and you should be doing it. Because if you're not, I mean, I have tattooed on my right arm, primum non nocare, right? If we're going to sit with the Hippocratic Latin. I mean, it's a... Really? My primum non nocere tattoo is also on my right arm. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's got to be a reminder that we, we have a real ethical obligation yeah. to the people that we see to be the best at what we do. And that means asking a lot of questions. And that means not being satisfied with basic answers. And that means uh, feeling like, well, I mean, so this is what we can do now. And I have a meta-analysis that shows this and that, and that's great. And that's what you do now. But why is that all we have? Why, why haven't we looked at different populations? Why is structural racism still in medicine? Why are um, you know, aspects of the social determinants of health not talked about when I give somebody an antibiotic or when I say telemedicine is going to fix it, but yet there's a subset of the population without a digital interface that maybe doesn't have the knowledge to use it or uh, you know, the broadband to, to stay on it. So I think that medicine is more than just that. But I think that at the end of the day, I mean, the... Uh, you have in, in the stages of your career, there are certain things that you should do. Amen. And the stage of your career of uh, undergraduate, you really need to make sure that you know the science, that you really know it. Not, not that you can take a test on it, but that you know it. And that in medical school, there's a lot of pressure to just be able to learn and repeat and learn and repeat. And some of that's fine. You know, some of that, you just need to know the bones in the body. You just need to know the muscles. You just need to know the nerves. You just need to understand the physiology and know, you know, this is the, um, what we give for this basic uh, syndrome. That's where you start. But after that, if you can't pull that back to the basic science, then you're going to lose the capacity to think critically. And the thing I like the most about addiction medicine is because it touches so many other things that it allows you to think critically about every aspect. You know, so if somebody has a maladaptive behavior, um, the depth of things that you can get into in that maladaptive behavior, what does the neuroscience look like? What is the clinical outcome of that? What is the, what is the physical exam findings of that behavior? What are the laboratory studies that I could look at for this? And what are the infectious diseases I need to know how to both find and treat? You know, what are, what are the, uh, the ways in which I can counteract that behavior with a medication or a therapy or both or neither? I mean, just the, the number of places that you can go with this disease is just different than I have a radius fracture. It's different than I have an ST elevation MI because I had an inflammatory reaction from the intimal uh, aspect of my coronary artery in which I go in and I expand it out. I put a stent in and I put you on a drug that blocks, you know, your uh, clotting factors and, and we're good. It, it's not, it, it doesn't feel like plumbing. It doesn't feel 
like uh, uh, construction. It feels like you're really digging into what is the what are the philosophical aspects of why we want to heal people. And I think that it's a really unique place that um, if I had gotten perspective in this earlier, this is all I could have thought about doing. It's an amazing place to be to have somebody at the bottom of their life uh, look to you for help. And, and, and not just I'm going to shock your rhythm and make it go back to sinus rhythm, but I, I have to reconstruct my relationships with my family. I have to figure out how I go back and get a job. I have to figure out um, how I don't sit and just think incessantly about using this drug or using this drug or how do I get this drug? How do we get there? And I have never seen a happier set of people, not only the patients, the families. You get somebody's dad stable when they've had alcohol use disorder and you get them stable, you've not only affected the trajectory of that one patient, but the entirety of that family lineage. And I think that that's a really important aspect to this that a lot of people don't get until you do it. And then once you do it, man, it's tough to not want to do it all the time. You know, being being in the on the other side of this conversation with somebody who is legit. I started as a medical director at a level one uh, opioid treatment program in in May, and I'd gotten X wavered like a couple years before. I, I always just got along with patients who have addiction. Yeah. And in residency, we did a little bit of I'm I'm OBGYN by the way, um, methadone um, in patients. We would continue it, just induce them on that, whatever. Sure. But then I was like looking for experience. I knew, um, you know, the the addiction medicine uh, practice pathway board certification was available. So, so anyways, I start doing two half days of clinic basically every week and completely has changed tons of things. Number one, I kind of like being a doctor again. Yeah. So I don't want to commit too hard on that. Because, you know, um, I've got to set limits. I got all these podcasts and other things to do. Got to deliver babies as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but number one, I, I yeah, I do really like being a doctor. And I feel like I'm doing what we all, I think, think we're going to do when we go into med school. And I mean, just the immediate feedback. And honestly, like, I don't know if this is bad or good, but it is kind of a low bar in terms of, of the ability to have a good therapeutic relationship with patients who have addiction it's like pardon the uh the language here but just like don't be a dick no i i think that's uh, lesson number one like start there (laughs) i mean somebody says thank you to me like this was a good experience every day now i mean i mean it strokes my ego a bit but it also makes me think like wow I hope I'm helping these people. And I think I have, cause you know, this guy now has 200 bucks at the end of the month and he just got his license back, like little wins like that. Yeah, but those are huge wins to the patients. Exactly, it, it, it's so awesome. So I, I kind of get it now and I want more. So I wish, uh, wish medicine had better lateral movement, but that is another conversation. Yeah. And I would say the, the the true delivery of good addiction treatment is the is the pinnacle of the uh, uh, the delivery of the healing arts in a sense because you're having to do the best of medicine like the actual thinking of you know physiology and neuroscience and uh, pharmacology and infectious disease, but then you're also having to modify yourself 
and be vulnerable as a human being to recognize that these are people who want to get better and you have to give them the chance to be better. Um, you know, to your point, when I first started in the emergency department, I thought I was doing a great job with these patients because I was not giving out opioids. So I trained in, uh, I started medical school in 99, finished in 2003, kind of right at the height of opioids for pain. Um, and that's it. And so I had people saying, just, you need to give this, you need to give this. And I never, it never felt right. Um, because if you look at the basic science, it didn't make sense because we knew that the, the body had the capacity uh, to create dependence and, and uh, tolerance. And um, at the molecular level, it, I couldn't make it fit. And so I thought that because I knew that if I just walked into a room with a patient and, and, and who was there for chronic pain, you know, you know, quotes, chronic pain, and I go to see them and I go, look, hey, I'm Dr. Waller. It's good to see you. Just so you know, I'm not going to be writing you for opioids today. Uh, how can I help you? Yeah, that is being a dick, right? I mean, that's the that's that's mean. Um, but I thought at the time that was the right thing because I'm going to take my stand and I'm not going to make this worse. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do that, and I, and I think that it gets beaten out of us in medical school and residency that the right way, because you have a bunch of burned out, angry folks who've been doing this for years and they they use you know really depleted, angry language about patients. And uh, they give, they ascribe intent to people before they've ever even met them. They, they look at their chief complaint and they've now created a set of intentions that this person must have to be here. They're just looking for dope. Never met them, yet we're somehow reading yeah. their mind. Right. Drug-seeking behavior. Yeah. Which, which yeah. like, I mean, yeah, it's the whole lexicon. I mean, it, really, I, I'm as far as 2020 goes, of all the things not to be thankful for, the thing I'm actually thankful for is the opportunity to, you know, uh, dip my toes into this water because it is it, it is such a a, a privilege and a, a pleasure to have people be like, I'm at like my worst right now. I I just I don't feel good about myself. I don't really feel anything. I can't move. I can't do anything. Yeah. I'm just broken. Can you help me? It's like. Yeah, I mean, I can start with just treating you like a person, right? And that's already a win, absolutely. Because um, you may not have had that experience, and it's it's just like really shameful. It kind of pisses me off too. But but uh, we live in a broken world on on many levels. No, I well, I agree, and I think that you know we do this. So the people listening to this, you've been chosen to go to medical school because you're smart. Uh, because you have the ability to absorb information, you have the ability to compress it and then put it out in different forms. Generally speaking, though, you weren't chosen because you're nice. <laughs> so, I mean, let's just be clear. Yeah. That's not why we were originally chosen. I mean, the filtration process for getting somebody into medical school and through medical school, which is super intense, does not predispose that you're kind. And, and I think that you really have to become introspective of that early in your career uh, before you have enough instances of not being kind, um, where then you start to feel guilty. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't think anybody here wanted to come in and be that person. That was not what we wanted, but you really have to think about it. If you're, you know, if you're in a position of privilege, being a, uh, somebody's physician, you get them at their most vulnerable. They tell you things they haven't told anybody else. And, um, and so you're in a position of privilege and power of, of being a physician. And if you're a white male like myself, then you get a bunch of innate privilege that you didn't even ask for 
Um, and so if you don't recognize how to wield that and understand that and, um, you know, just don't make it worse, then you can do a lot of harm with that power. Yeah. And so it's important, I think, for the people listening to this to recognize when you walk out of there and you get your degree and you're an MD, no matter what you do, you're, you're going to be given a certain amount of power and privilege in society and you have to wield that responsibly. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, I think you have somewhat of a philosophical bent uh, on these things. Maybe you have to in addiction medicine, but my, uh, I would recommend to you as well as the listeners, again, uh, anything by Edmund Pellegrino, um, who is often called the father of bioethics. But Yeah, yeah, that and his water is really good too. But the, uh, um, <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, I, yeah, no, his work is, is good. And I agree that um, if you don't understand the difference between beneficence and maleficence and, um, you know, and, and what those really do mean, um, you're going to have trouble. Yeah. Um, and your trouble's not going to perk up for a while because you're going to be like, I'm getting a check. People like me. I have a title. Yeah. And then you're going to start really accumulating a lot of things internally, emotionally that later you're going to have to re you know, reconcile. Yeah. And uh, to go back to the four principles briefly, autonomy is one of them. Mm -hmm. And in uh, the philosophical basis of medical practice, uh, Pellegrino distinguishes a few senses of the good uh, for a patient. You know, there's the medical good biologically that makes sense, but yeah. that's not all we do because we don't just do applied biology. There's also right. uh, the good of a uh, a patient as a person and what makes people yeah. uh, persons it's it's the ability to choose so in addiction and i guess this can be our segue into talking more about <laughs> about the actual science and whatnot um it's hard to maximize someone's autonomy who has addiction because they themselves don't have a lot of choice. It seems actually like phenomenologically, it seems like they don't have a choice when you talk to them in an exam room. Although we go about see their chief complaint on the, you know, the, the ER uh, grease board or whatever. And it's like, oh, um, they're, they're choosing to get high they're, I don't know. It's just like it. I guess my question here, that rambling would just be, is addiction just a choice? Uh, leading questions I always ask. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I think that this comes up a lot. And uh, so one, uh, the initial utilization of any substance is the first and only time it's a true choice, if you want to think about this. So if you're, if you're 14 and you're in some cul-de-sac with some buddies and you're going to drink a beer and there are 10 of you, um, there are one or two of those people in that cul-de-sac who are going to have a very different experience with that alcohol than you are. And uh, their brain is going to react in such a way that their nucleus accumbens and their ventral tegmental area are going to release a disproportionate amount of dopamine, which is going to impart a feeling of reward. And that feeling of reward, we all like. Um, you have to like reward if you're in this business. And, uh, and so that's why we find that people in medicine uh, can have a higher incidence and risk of certain addictive behaviors, as well as, uh, um, you know, whether it be gambling gaming, um, or, uh, um, or other things uh, with substances. And so when we look at the original choice, it's that, but if you, let's, let's put it in this term, if you are 14 and you have a, you live in a household with domestic violence, you've had some adverse childhood events, you've been through a divorce, um, you have some mild depression and you drink two beers and that's gone. And you're like, holy cow, this is a whole different ball game. Is it really the same choice the second time? I would, I would, I would say no. I would too. 
And then over time, we actually see modifications in two other parts of the brain, the lateral habenula and the orbital frontal cortex. So the orbital frontal cortex is the portion of the brain responsible for um, assigning value. It's the thing that assigns the, uh, I see this as a valuable thing. And not feeling sad, not feeling angry is pretty valuable for most people. If you do that enough, you will lock in a white matter tract that goes to the lateral habenula, which is responsible for our default reactions to heightened senses of alertness, fear, anxiety, um, interaction. So if somebody comes at me and I have, uh, I've decided that I'm going to introvert and hide because I don't want to have my dad beat the crap out of me. So I go hide in my room. And over time, you identify that hiding in your room actually gives you benefit. So their orbital frontal cortex starts to find value in that. The lateral habenula says, well, this better be the default reaction. At that point, it's the equivalent of a neurobiocentral, you know, CNS reflex. It's no longer a, I'm going to utilize my frontal lobe to do a pros and cons list of the best thing that I should do when my dad comes home drunk. And if you're a guy in that same situation and you're a little bigger now and you feel like I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for myself in this situation and you pop your dad in the face and he backs off, you find value in that because he's no longer coming at you and attacking you or maybe your siblings or maybe your mom. And, and so that becomes over time the default reaction to where somebody takes your parking spot from you in a parking lot, your lateral habenula says, in conflict, this is what I do. And you go pop some random dude in the face in a parking lot for no reason. That, that's, that's not a choice in the way that we think about a hierarchical choice pathway. It is the lateral habenular reaction to our orbital frontal cortex over time finding value in that. And that is the habituation part of addiction. Yeah. So you have a reward matrix, which lives in the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens, which is dopamine based. And, and, and you, know, you can get depletion of that if you overuse it. Uh, some people are more susceptible to bumps in that for things. Um, which puts them at higher risk for addiction. But the behaviors associated with obtaining that reward as a default live more in this habituation side, which is where the orbital frontal cortex and the lateral habenula is. So from a science perspective, it is not a decision in the way that we think about decisions. It is a reaction. Yeah. And I mean, that is, you know, the freedom of the will is a hugely complex topic, which we won't get into. Uh, yeah. But um, what's, tell me how this goes. Um, when patients, I mean, again, this is just crazy to me. I've had patients who've done like nearly decades now in, in prison for extremely violent crimes who sure. were also the victim of violence as they grew up, um, just crying like, you know, prison tattoos, like more tattoos than I have. And I have a lot, um, but like head to toe covered and they're just yeah, like yeah. crying and they're like, you know, I don't know why I can't quit. You know, the kind of a classic story. Cause you know, they're, they're, we're not completely faded to our biology. And, um, so I usually say, well, you know, someone who has diabetes, usually yes. I was like, well, if you eat enough sugar, you can burn out your pancreas. You can't make insulin and then your sugar in the blood goes too high and you can actually go into like a coma die from this sort of thing um or you know just really mess up your health over a longer term and the way we fix that is to add back insulin that your body doesn't produce anymore so 
if you're reticent, say, to take um, uh, methadone or Suboxone for your opiate use disorder, it might be better to think of it in this way. And this is like a heuristic. I just feel like sure, it's sure. easy and relatable. But then I'm like, okay. how many diabetics do you know who never go to Dairy Queen after their diagnosis? None. Yeah. And then, and then if they go to Dairy Queen or they go and eat a box of Krispy Kremes, do they get fired from their primary care doctor? <laughs> right. Because this is what happens for patients with, you know, people with addiction is that we expect perfection from them. I mean, to expect perfect. I mean, so to say, if you ever have a glucose above 120, you're fired, bro. I'm not doing this anymore. You suck. <laughs> uh, you're not even trying. You just made a decision. You know, we don't, we don't say that your blood pressure, you, you miss a day of meds, your blood pressure pops to 180 over, uh, you know, over 90, you know, and you send that in on your Apple watch and your doc doesn't be like, well, you know, that's a fail. Yeah. Non-compliant. But if you're in recovery for five years, 10 years, and you have a weekend where something just went sideways and you drink and you wake up hungover the next morning, that's, that's seen as a fail. Yep. It's not a fail. It's a chronic disease. Yeah. It's a modulatory reality. And so we have to figure out how we have a conversation of recognizing that one, people have the autonomy to say, no, thank you. I don't feel like this is the right pathway for me. Best pathway we can take from the beneficent side is to make sure that they understand the benefits of this and not judge them for making that decision, but support them in that and recognizing that they're responsible for their recovery. And I'm responsible for helping them figure out what is the best pathway for that. Yeah. Um, Opioids are interesting because it's the easiest addiction to treat. Yeah. Uh, by far. And uh, people say, man, we're opioid crisis. I'm like, this is just, it's irritating because if we suck this bad at the easy one, you know, what about methamphetamine? The one we caused in, in <laughs> right. many respects right. too. Like it's, it's insane, which we are doing or recently have not learned our lesson with benzos, it seems, but. No, that'll be, that's gonna, that one will be there. Uh, obviously methamphetamine is gonna be an issue. Marijuana is a big one that's coming up uh, that we're gonna see. And um, and so, you know, the number one cause of uh, admission for addiction related disorder for adolescents is marijuana. And it has been for the last decade. So this is not a newbie, this is not new. Um, it has the same uh, addictive liability for adolescents as alcohol as far as risk. And so, uh, you know, people use this argument about different things, you know, whatever feels um, like they have to justify some behavior that they had had. And, you know, I've smoked weed. <laughs> I lived in Austin for, you know, God's sake. And so, um, you know, so we smoked a little weed. And so I was like, yeah, it's just weed. People would be like, yeah, I'd rather them do weed than, you know, shoot, shoot heroin. And I'm like, well, so that's like saying I would rather be shot by a 22 caliber bullet than a 45 caliber bullet. Um, I would just rather not be shot. And so the, uh, the answer would be anyone who utilizes a, a drug or has a behavior to the point of pathology, that's an issue. If somebody just smokes every now and then, I don't care. Why am I in their business? I mean, that's not what the point is. The point is, is not to say that drugs are bad. It's the pathologies associated with those drugs that can turn bad. And so there are certain things that have such a high risk that from a societal standpoint, somebody who's quote experimenting can die from first use. Those are really high risk substances. Meaning if you have a 14 year old and they're in, and heroin's just on the street and available for everybody to get, no matter what, we're going to lose a lot of 14 year olds because at that point, it, again, that's the first decision and we don't make great ones at that age. Right. <laughs> so, so I, I think at the end, 
Um, while we can identify from a neurobiological sense, the risk of the development of addiction, the risk of the physiologic symptoms that come along from each one of the substances and or behaviors, whether that be gambling, gaming, sex, and, and the risks that go with that, or um, we can just have the conversation that there's a tipping point of pathology. And the entirety of addiction is defined based on the behaviors associated with obtaining and using a drug, not the presence or absence of a drug. And so that's an important piece. Well, define addiction. So addiction and its overarching uh, pathway is the pathological seeking of and utilization of a substance or the pathological seeking of and uh, delivering of a behavior that creates maladaptive uh, impacts on your social uh, life, on your physical uh, well-being, and on your risk of life or death, despite known harm. And so if all of those things occur, uh, whether it's gambling and you lose all your money and your family and things like that, or it's heroin and you've overdosed twice, or it's methamphetamine and you have cardiomyopathy because of uh, the high output cardiac failure that you've created four times, um, it, at the end, it's kind of a moot point. Those are just the physiologic phenomenon and risks that we need to identify. But the pathology for each of those, whether it's gambling, gaming, heroin, methamphetamine, the behavioral pathology is the same. And so that is the interesting piece. It is the, uh, it is the loss of typical control over the doing of that behavior or the utilization of that substance that it becomes so pathological that it breaks down our basic contextual ability to exist in the world around us in what other people would see as a normal fashion. And so it doesn't matter, insert A, B, or C, it's the pathology that breaks the person, it's not the drug. Hmm. So let's go then into it. If, if I'm a medical student, uh, just trying to think about these things, in that context of addiction is one of those diseases that touches every specialty. What are like the, let's say, brain areas or what's some basic neurobiology that can help me think about um, addiction and put it in a framework that is, you know, uh, takes into account that bio, biological, you know, psychosocial, all that stuff? Well, I think that there's a core, there's a fundamental pathology that exists throughout all of addiction neurobiologically, and that is through the uh, limbic system, specifically within the reward aspect of the limbic system. And the, the, Areas that seem to be the most affected are things like the periaqueductal gray, which uh, helps uh, has a number of functions, but is the producer of our endorphins and signaling to the ventral tegmental area, which is where the main reward system starts to produce dopamine. Um, then there are signals from the ventral tegmental area that go to the nucleus accumbens. And so those are the three basic ones. Um, and the, that is the kind of the pathway for reward. Now, there are interconnections with the amygdala. Um, as well. Now, the amygdala is its own kind of island. It, it has uh, more interconnections with the remainder of the brain than any other single nuclei in the brain. So, and, and it's broken into three uh, lateral, medial, and central, uh, lateral, central, medial beds of the uh, amygdala. But in general, the, uh, and that is kind of where we identify our emotions, like the lateral bed nuclei of the amygdala is really responsible for fear um, is there. And uh, the central bed is where a lot of our emotional memories are put in there. So if you think about the easy way to remember that is like PTSD, um, you have an emotional, horrible memory. It sets up right inside of that central bed nuclei of the amygdala, right next to the part of the amygdala responsible for fear. 
So if you have a memory that pops back up, you see somebody that looks like the person who attacked you or you smell something or you know, some instance, it's right next to the fear part. So you have a panic attack and you have this PTSD pathology that comes from that because they're right next to each other. In fact, they're mostly coupled in the way that that happens. But that's also where your happiest memories live. So you can sit back and you think about these really cool things and you're like, that was pretty sweet. And these are affected in a way uh, for drug memories. So we have, uh, if somebody has really positive experiences using in their history, that's generally the first place that they go if people are pushing back on them for this. And the interesting part is, is let's say I have a memory of the time that I was hanging out with friends and I got pretty drunk and it was a super good time. I can get a little intoxicated from that because that memory then issues that signal to bump my own dopamine, that cue associated response. So I can, um, and in fact, we've identified this is that is one of the major triggers for relapse is that we accidentally trigger an old memory that triggers a bump in dopamine in the central reward, which then revs that up to be more susceptible for active seeking of the drug. Also the place in the brain that's responsible for those people in college who will go get a keg of fake beer um, and some people will act drunk. It's not just pathology. Some people will actually have a dopamine release to make them look and feel like they're intoxicated. They're not faking. Now, there are some that do, but, <laughs> but in the end, you can get a real physiologic piece. So the neurobiology of this is interesting. Um, I mean, you can get deeper into different pieces, but yeah. Well, can you give me a, a heuristic? I, I'm not asking you to be like, you know, 100% scientifically accurate, but give me a way to think about the like neurochemicals too that are involved in, in addiction. Right. So, you know, we talked about the central axis of the, um, of the reward system, and that, that's really driven mostly by dopamine. And outside of the dopaminergic signaling, you have to think about what are the specific drugs that we're using and what do they do, right? So alcohol works on really nine different systems, but the main one is GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. And, and so that's why we get some of those initial feelings of decrease, but it also works on a number of other ones. I think it's probably out of scope for this conversation, but, but then we think about methamphetamine, which works on the dopamine system, but it works uh, in a bunch of different aspects. So it not only um, blocks the reuptake of dopamine at the synapse, but it also causes the, uh, uh, the neuron to spit it out. So it causes the vesicles to spit more dopamine out. So you're spitting it out and not taking it up, whereas cocaine just blocks the reuptake. So those little pieces mean, mean something there. And then when dopamine in certain areas, uh, so let's say we affect GABA. If we affect GABA, GABA is the indirect, it's the brakes, right? And, and what is it the brakes for? Well, the gas pedal is glutamate. And so glutamate is the excitatory molecule in the central axis that makes the brain kind of go. Um, it is affected by dopamine, which also produces an increase in glutamate norepinephrine, which is produced mainly in the locus ceruleus, which can increase the production of uh, glutamate centrally. And, uh, and then we also have GABA, which works in mainly what we call interneurons, you know, the things that are the, the modulators of excitatory pathways. And so depending on the different substance, you can have a myriad of, of different chemical processes going on. So for those of you who are trying to remember you know, from neuroscience, what each of the synapse does, what is a vesicle, when is it released, if you know, you know, kinesin and dynein, the motor proteins that move them in and then move them out. And we talk about production and the breakdown of these molecules, it matters. These are things you really have to know. 
if you know these, then, then being an addiction medicine doc is pretty fun because I can have somebody sitting in front of me who's intoxicated on a couple of different substances and I could draw you a synapse and what's happening at each one of those to know what's happening. And it's practical in a sense that that also tells you what the antidote is because you need to know how to actually say, if I have someone whose glutamate is up there and they're hyper excitable, what are some things that I can do to decrease that? And we know that um, if I push on the brakes and, and interact with the GABA system, that there's a solid chance that I'm going to be able to uh, give them a benzodiazepine and get some of that to, to decrease. The, uh, the other is, is if I have a person who um, is on opioids and I've been suppressing the locus ceruleus over time, um, you know, and the locus ceruleus again produces norepinephrine. If I'm suppressing it, it's going to start producing more and more epinephrine um, to overcome, overcome that. So I'm awake so that I can, you know, walk around and, and, and be alert. If I remove that um, opioid, now all of a sudden I'm producing five times the amount of norepinephrine centrally as I should. And therefore what I see is opioid withdrawal. So, and how do I decrease norepinephrine? Well, you can give some things like beta blockers. You can also give something specifically clonidine um, and lafoxidine, which goes right to the locus ceruleus and modulates that through the alpha two um, receptor. So, um, if you understand what's happening physiologically in each of these, the, the antidotes for these aren't memorizable, they're just logical. And so that understanding the pharmacology and the neuroscience of this uh, is meaningful. And it's meaningful uh, um, in a number of different ways. And I, I tutored, you know, I went to grad school for neuromolecular biology before I went to med school, which ended up being really helpful <laughs> in a number of ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would tutor my classmates on some things as we were going through. And many times they would get better score, better grades on the test because we would do tutoring and then they would just do 50, you know, different old tests and take questions and learn how to do that. But then I'd ask them three months later about something and they'd have no idea. I don't know, man, that was on the test three times ago. So it is important to, to learn it uh, because you can really apply it. Uh, and so there is no general concept of the chemistry other than the dopamine. And if you're thinking about just dopamine, I mean, we have kind of a normal daily level that requires us to be motivated. And I, I would always tell people to, if you hear the word motivation, think dopamine. And if you hear uh, dopamine, think motivation. I mean, they are the same thing. They cannot occur with, without the other. And if I, uh, you know, I have this normal, let's say 50 nanograms per deciliter produced at my nucleus accumbens for, uh, uh, for dopamine, that's what I need to get, get up in the morning, go get a cup of coffee and, and go to my day right? The bad day, um, you know, the day you call like, your, you know, your chief resident and you fake vomit on the phone and say, I can't come in today. I'm just like, oh, I'm going to sit at home. I, you don't want to do anything. You go to your basement. And if you were me, you go down, you play Xbox and, um, you know, waste six hours staring at the, uh, the screen. And, uh, but you needed that because you just had, didn't have enough dopamine. You had that low dopamine anhedonia. And then best day ever, you know, the day you win the lottery and uh, you have 2% body fat all at the same time. I mean, that's like the best day ever you've won that. And uh, that's about 100 nanograms per deciliter, right? So this is the range that we're supposed to live in. This is, this is so that you get a good grade on a test and you're wicked happy. You know, you uh, go on a date with the person you really enjoy and you're like really happy from that. You're, uh, if you're too happy too much, then you have a couple days where you're not but you're not sad, sad. You're just like, eh, you're flat affected. You're what we call anhedonic. Um, or as I like to call it the Eeyore phase of life. Yeah. So 
if 100 is our best and I give you methamphetamine and it forces your brain to squeeze out 1,100 nanograms per deciliter, it's not sustainable. And all drugs and behaviors that create addiction disproportionately release dopamine. And that's the common chemical trait of these. And when that happens over time, the body tends to move toward homeostasis. And as it tends to move toward homeostasis, it will decrease the initially the release of dopamine to a stimulus. Then it will decrease the production of dopamine to a stimulus. Then it will atrophy the neurons that are responsible for producing and releasing dopamine. And then for methamphetamine and opioids, we've identified that it actually will set off this cascade of apoptosis, which is programmed to cell death. If you can remember to your Robbins pathology course, the, uh, um, and what that creates is actually death in cells in the brain that do not regenerate. They don't come back. And so it is a stroke in the happy part of your brain. And so instead of you taking methamphetamine and getting 1,100, maybe it's 700, maybe it's 600, then it's 400, then it's 100, then you use methamphetamine and you can't even feel like it's the best day of your life. Yeah. At that point, we're sub-physiological. And then if I remove them, let's say we find them, we're like, oh, I got you. I'm going to put you in rehab and we're going to make you all better. Um, now I have a person whose basal dopamine level is not 50, not 40. Um, it's 10, 15. And they can't physically get out of bed. That sounds so hopeless. It feels, no, it looks, I mean, to watch this people be like this, it, it looks so sad. I mean, it is, it is a really difficult thing. The issue is, is that if we give them time and we give them directed therapy, then what we can change over time is the ability for the body to reproduce dopamine at its normal physiologic levels for most, not all. I mean, some of these uh, patients uh, are done. They've had literally a stroke in the happy part of their brain. Yeah. And so what we do for them is harm reduction. These are the folks that we don't necessarily have a chance to get them back to where we would want them to be. You know what? Uh, they're homeless. They have an alcohol use disorder. They've been drinking um, for 35 years. I get them uh, stable and early remission on medication without alcohol, but they're Eeyore every day, man, at their best. It's the best they can be. So they go back to drinking because at least they don't feel that horrible. So this is a person who what I do is you get housing and you keep treating them and you care about them. Yeah. And you, you don't- you, you don't discharge them from your practice? No, no. Oh. In fact, I can say without question, I have never fired a patient. Yeah. Even one who tried to rob me in the parking lot, which was kind of a funny story after the fact. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Can so, you tell that story? Because that's interesting. You can't just leave us hanging on that one. Yeah, no, it's, I, I finished. Uh, I was working in Michigan, uh, west side of Michigan. It was winter. Um, and uh, I left the office late and my car is across the street in a parking lot. It was kind of one of the last cars left in the parking lot. Um, and, but I had my had a hat on, like a winter hat on and a coat on, so you couldn't really see who it was. And I walk out of my clinic, I go to my car, um, I kind of hear somebody behind me and he kind of grabs me on the shoulder and says, give me your wallet, pulls me down and I, I rare, like rotate over with my arm and kind of knock him down and I look and I'm like, dude, Jeff, what the hell? And he goes, Dr. Waller, I didn't know it was you. And I was like, it doesn't matter. You were trying to rob somebody in the parking lot. I will see you at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and um and he showed up. You're like, still, what the hell? <laughs> and we saw him and we figured out that what had happened was, is that he had had his uh, monthly check stolen at the shelter. Yeah. And uh, a true story, he didn't go spend it on drugs. He didn't do any of that. And he was desperate. He, he couldn't get back in the shelter because he had missed the hour that you can get back in the shelter. 
He had no place to stay that night. He needed money to get in a hotel and he'd been panhandling and didn't get anything. And so he felt desperate. And, and so it, at the end, I mean, these people's lives are just horrible. I had street medicine in Camden, New Jersey for a couple of years. And man, talk about desperation. Talk about uh, cultural and racist strife. <laughs> to judge somebody in this situation is the least doctorly thing you could ever do. I mean, it is, uh, in my mind, the lowest of low to be in such a position of privilege, of knowledge, of capacity and capability, and to somehow judge them to be bad or wrong, almost unforgivable in my mind. Um, and the longer I do it, it becomes more and more unforgivable. There's going to be a point at which I can't interact with other doctors. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to just finally be so angry about Those it. are some strong words, man. <laughs> but I think, honestly, I mean, if you don't check your own knowledge and privilege and capacity and you somehow push it, it makes you bad at all of medicine, not just addiction medicine. I mean, uh, pride comes before a fall. You know, this is sure. kind of a, a theme that's been throughout our, our, you know, collective history. You know, standing high and mighty tends, you know, not yeah. to work well for uh, those who famously do it. And and absolutely, I, I feel like that's totally worse too. Like if you're you're up there, like uh, you know, calling somebody, you know, uh, any sort of name, being you know, judging them to be scum or the dregs of society or or serves them right any of this stuff well yeah you know look how the mighty have fallen it's it's coming for you um yeah so that is a that's a pretty awesome story actually um yeah so we actually got him uh, um did you get him a hotel so I, I i couldn't get a hotel that night um and uh because the one the two that we sent them to were there and we had had a problem in the past where we trying to send a patient to the hotel across from where we were which was the jw American. Marriott. And even though we were willing to pay, they weren't willing to see them, which pissed me off even more. But the, uh, so I was able to get him into the shelter that night. And then we were able to get him on uh, uh, longer term housing two days later. Nice. That's awesome. That's what doctoring is. Yeah, no, it really is. And I drove him there. That's sweet. <laughs> and and that's just kind of normal stuff. Now my risk, my the risk attorney for the health system was like, you drove a patient somewhere. I'm like, ah, shut up, Jake. Didn't like that. I, I'm sure you know the uh, Gabor Mate's uh, in the realm of hungry ghosts. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that book uh, highly recommended just on addiction in general. But there's so many stories like that, and I'm like, dude, this guy's a badass. Like, that's the kind of doctor I want to be. Just like he's like hanging out like with the patients in a in a way that you know just makes it seem like a human relationship, which yeah. is what a doctor patient relationship is supposed to be with boundaries, of course. Like, I don't yeah. treat you know, my preceptor the same as I treat, you know, like my, my spouse and, you know, an acquaintance, my best sure. friend, a podcast guest as, as I do my spouse or anything like that. So, but yeah, we need to nurture those relationships and that's, that's pretty beautiful end to that one. Yeah, no, and I think boundaries is something that we're not taught a lot, you know? Yeah. And what I always tell people, I go, look, you're going to have to give a portion of yourself to your patients. So you should choose what portion of yourself you want to give them or they'll take it. And if you don't give it freely and willingly and happily, the portion that you've decided on, then you've lost control of what they pull from you over time. And that creates burnout. And so they know I have kids. They know that, you know, that I'm married. They know that you have a few, I had a few stories that I would use for my patients that were personal in nature, but they were the same stories and they were not as specific as they could have been. They don't know my kids' names. They don't know, you know, the ages, they don't, you know, 
there are pieces of you that you should be able to just naturally and easily give to people. Sure. And that puts them at ease. Right. And, and, and also creates a trusting relationship to allow good patient-centered, you know, decision-making to happen uh, moving forward if you have tough decisions to make. Absolutely. Man, this is wonderful. I could really talk to you all day, but we, we should do some questions because even though absolutely 100%, you need to know more than what's on the exam. And thank God, step one is now pass-fail. Yeah. Part of this podcast is getting giving people something they can take away from the episode, carry with them to the exam center. Yeah. And hopefully also now, especially with this addiction series, um, influence the way they, they view our profession and uh, the patients that we serve. So um, you want to do some questions here? This yeah. will be all over the place. Uh, I'm going to pretty much take them random. Yeah, let's go. We can edit things but we're not going to. This is going to be, uh, Dr. Waller, uh, like you are first day, third year medical student uh, surgery rotation in the OR. Bring it. All right. No, I won't do that to him. Too nice. I, was, I talk a big game. I always tell the students who'd show up, I'd be like, welcome to hell. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I actually loved my uh, surgery rotation. <laughs> um, I liked all my rotations. Yeah, me too. I, that's why I went into emergency medicine because I couldn't, couldn't choose. choose. All right. So... In this case, we have, thank you to Stat Pearls, a 37-year-old man who's found unresponsive, okay? Mm -hmm. His friends on the scene tell the EMS that he is an IV drug user. On examination, the patient is exhibiting shallow and infrequent respirations and is lying near a used needle and a clear plastic bag of what is presumed to be heroin. Before transporting the patient to the hospital, EMS administers intranasal naloxone and he starts to wake up. And on arrival at the hospital, the patient has vomiting and diarrhea and is tachycardic and tachypnic. So, which of the following is the most appropriate treatment for the new symptoms the patient has experienced? So, I guess those are referring back to that vomiting, diarrhea, tachycardia, um, tachypnea are the new symptoms. So what's the most appropriate treatment? Do we have A, clonidine, B, methadone, C, buprenorphine, or D, naloxone? Help us think through this. And you can, you can comment on the questions too. These are not from yeah, so, the NBME. Right. So um, I think that depending on when that question was written would depend on which answer was given and also your specialty. So I'll say, what would a, a person in the emergency emergency department generally give to a patient who, based on the story, is in acute precipitated opioid withdrawal? And acute precipitated opioid withdrawal is 85 to 95% from an increased release of norepinephrine at the locus ceruleus, which we know that the medication clonidine can suppress. So in theory, you could give them clonidine to suppress the release of the norepinephrine to stabilize the uh, um, the withdrawal, so that that could be a correct answer. That is, in fact, the correctly scored answer because I think this came from a step one level bank. So probably right. so, trying to get you to think along that, but but continue because we have a few tons of things you can probably pull out from this question to comment on. Right. So one piece is that methadone won't do anything for them because you've given them naloxone and methadone has a lower affinity for the mu receptor than does naloxone, which is an antagonist at the mu receptor. So one, 
if I gave them methadone, even IV, um, it's not going to really modify their symptoms because the naloxone is going to be binding to those mu receptors. The other piece with methadone is that you don't get peak effective dose with methadone for days. So it takes a while for that to actually stack because it, it's uh, very lipophilic and it actually has to, um, it has a multi-day stack dosing and it takes three to five days for you to actually hit peak steady state dose uh, with methadone. So I wouldn't utilize methadone. Yeah. So for the test, clonidine is the answer. I'm just going to say that before I talk about buprenorphine, which is a super cool molecule. But buprenorphine has the same or a little higher affinity than naloxone for the mu receptor. And so if I gave that person buprenorphine, I could, within about three to five minutes, decrease uh, their uh, um, opioid withdrawal. And if I titrated that up, I could stop it. And then the interesting piece of that, I will have immediately stopped their withdrawal. And now they're also on the treatment for opioid use disorder with the same medication that I just stopped their withdrawal with. I'm a second, third or fourth year med student, maybe an intern. I'm like, wait, I thought you could get precipitated withdrawal from a partial mu agonist. Uh, yeah. How does that not make it worse? I don't, I don't get it. Well, they're in precipitated withdrawal. They're already there. Cat's out of the bag. Okay. And so now what you have is the ability to take the thing causing the precipitated withdrawal and then take that over with buprenorphine. So if you think about a dimmer switch, um, you know, heroin turns it all the way up to 100%, right? And, it, and if it's at 100% and I give you buprenorphine, it rapidly turns that dial to 50% and you go into precipitated withdrawal. But if you're at 100% and I give you naloxone, and it rapidly takes that to zero. Then I give you buprenorphine, you go from zero to 50. Yeah. And so it actually does the opposite of what that's causing. And you can, you can get on top of the withdrawal with that and fully transition them from that. And that's becoming the standard of care in emergency departments now. And there are now three publications on that. But uh, I don't think it's test question ready, but. So it's, so it's not bring them to the ER make sure they're not, uh, they don't have something else going on and <laughs> kicking them out? Correct. It's not, you suck as a human being, you should go away. It's, oh, wait, I can treat your withdrawal and start you on the medication for your treatment that decreases your mortality rate by 25% in the next year um, and get you some follow-up. That's the piece, man. We need we need some systems that that there's the there's the um, open mouth of the funnel. Yeah. Now in our communities, you know, let's get people hooked up with some real capacity for change. All right, naloxone was next, or if if you're not done with buprenorphine. No, so naloxone, all you're going to do is continue to uh, maintain uh, the precipitated withdrawal. Because if you did nothing um, within about thirty to forty five minutes, that withdrawal would start to abate because the half life for uh, naloxone is uh, 30 to 45 minutes. And so you're going to start cutting it in half every 30 to 45 minutes. And by doing that, you're going to allow the heroin that's in their system to slowly bind back to the mu receptors and thus stabilize um, their withdrawal without doing anything. And so on the list, clonidine is the easy one because we know, and that's the board, that's the pharmacology question because the pharmacology questions on the board are written by pharmacologists, not by clinicians. So always remember that. What would the pharmacologist say? not the addiction medicine doctor. Yeah, there you go. Um, so to simplify it. So uh, was that was that it? So it was bupenoloxone uh, and... Uh, clonidine, methadone, buprenorphine, naloxone. I mean, out of those, the board answer is uh, clonidine. Yeah. 
Um, and it won't be in five years, uh, but it is now. All right. Gotcha. Um, let's see here. We got, here's another case. All right. So in this one, we have a 24 year old male who went to the ER before had signs of acute appendicitis and had an emergent appendectomy. During this time, his appendix ruptured, spilling erosive contents into the abdomen. Um, he develops numerous fistulas secondary to that rupture, undergoes multiple more surgeries um, require, uh, following this over the next few months. Um, and he keeps having abdominal pain, gets prescribed a patient-controlled analgesic pump with morphine for relief on this present admission. So the ER, or excuse me, the physician evaluates him, patient's incisions uh, of these multiple surgeries have healed, um, and the team tries to wean him off the PCA morphine stepwise. However, the patient has severe withdrawal symptoms claiming to have nausea and showing evidence of tachycardia, diarrhea, and chills, and he just can't be weaned off. So they consider switching him to a drug that is a full mu opiate receptor agonist, which will help with preventing his withdrawal symptoms and contribute to long-term rehabilitation for dependency. Okay, so let me just say, like, you can't teach in the stem of a question. Um, so this is not NBME compliant. But yeah, uh, uh, what we have to figure out here, asked to figure out, is what pharmacological property of this potential drug helps prevent withdrawal symptoms in this patient. That is sort of convoluted. Yeah. Um, but a numerous active metabolites. B low volume of distribution. C long half-life d short half-life does this question even make sense we might have to go back and break it down yeah 24 year old guy bad post-op course gets readmitted gets pca pump can't get weaned off because he has opioid withdrawal symptoms the team wants to give him a drug that's a full mu opiate receptor agonist to prevent such what is the drug they're planning to give him? Well, what it's asking is what are the components of uh, the drug that would most likely help him? Yeah. At least based on the description. So the components of the drug that would be helpful in this setting is a long half-life because with a long half-life, you're going to um, have a, uh, a slower onset of any withdrawal symptoms and it'll take less doses throughout the day. So if you're going to wean somebody off of a morphine PCA, you could put them on MS cotton, which is a long acting full agonist um, opioid. And in uh, that way, it, uh, it doesn't rapidly cause anything. <laughs> it, uh, it stays in the system longer, and so you have enough um, overlap. Uh, a short-acting medication would have the potential to cause more rapid withdrawal because it only lasts for three to four hours rather than 12. And so because of that, if you gave a short-acting, they have to take it every uh, uh, three and a half to four hours to not go into withdrawal, which doesn't make sense for somebody with a chronic pain. And uh, active metabolites um, is for morphine a non-issue because the active metabolites of morphine are, um, are not uh, bioactive as compared to some of the other ones uh, that, are, that are there. And so uh, you want to give something with uh, not, not metabolites, which we don't, we can go into some of those opioids that have those. But uh, generally speaking, my thought would be if they're saying what attribute of a full agonist opioid that we would most want, it would be the long acting aspect of it. And that is absolutely correct. 
And I, I, I love what you did there, the way you thought through it. You evidenced what you spoke of earlier, you know, being logical and thinking clinically about this stuff because even though it's not perhaps the best question, really what it's asking. You're going to get some not the best questions. That's a reality. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. But what if we gave methadone? Yeah, methadone would be great um, in a sense. Uh, you would have to have a little bit of a – so what you would do is start the methadone in the hospital um, while they're still on the PCA. So you would give them their first dose of methadone, let's say, Monday morning. Um, and uh, you would maintain the PCA dose, and then you could give them methadone in the evening. Um, well, for pain, you want to do methadone three times a day. It's a TID medication. But uh, so you would do uh, 10 mil, let's just say 10 milligrams morning, middle of the day, and evening. And then after that evening dose, you can uh, start to wean down the PCA pump. Um, and then you can wean that down and have it off by the next day because you will have had that couple of days to get the methadone up enough to uh, one, treat their pain, but also uh, decrease the chances for opioid withdrawal. And then long-term, methadone is actually a really, of the opioids, a helpful um, opioid pain medication. Now, it should be stated that opioids for chronic pain have zero data for efficacy, Um, but there is a subset of the possibility, there's a subset of the population that there really is no other alternative. I would, however, state that opioids in this patient are probably a bad idea given that you've had multiple issues with their uh, bowels and then putting it on an opioid, which decreases motility, would increase the chances for constipation. And in this person, obstipation and obstruction uh, because of the fistula formation and the, you know, the belly full of adhesions that we all know they have. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I would try my best to, to use non-opioid medication uh, for this and recognize that Adhesions can be painful, but the better you do with stooling, uh, the less likely those adhesions are to cause pain with uh, with the normal data day to day peristalsis required. Let me ask a, a couple things. Uh, so, in in the context of using methadone for a, opiate use disorders, number one, you look in. Uh, all the books, and it's like methadone has a super long duration of action. It's like 12 uh, hours to five days, like the range, like what? Yeah. Why? So why is it like that? And then number two, patients often say, oh, man, I heard that the withdrawal from methadone is way worse than the withdrawal from fentanyl or heroin or whatever. I would say that my patients will tell me that the withdrawal from whatever they're on is the worst withdrawal they've ever had. Yeah, that makes sense. And so with methadone, um, it does do two different things. So methadone is a little bit of a special opioid in that it has, uh, it it not only binds to the mu receptor, but the molecule itself um, has indirect applications on the um, NMDA, pathway internally. So it actually acts a little bit like ketamine in that sense. So when you give somebody methadone, you're not just giving them an opioid, you're also giving them the equivalent of ketamine and what it does at the dorsal horn. Uh, I think specifically in lamina three with the interneurons is where it actually causes modulation of the NMDA pathway um, there. And so when you withdraw from methadone, you have a combination of opioid withdrawal and ketamine withdrawal in a sense. And, uh, and so with that, you get this burning paresthesias, uh, which is kind of a specific uh, side effect of methadone as compared to the other opioids. And therefore, they would say, I feel like I'm on fire. And that's a really common reality. So 
clinically speaking and pharmacologically speaking, that's probably an accurate assessment for methadone, given that you're withdrawing from the equivalent of two different drugs. All right. In this one, we have a 37-year-old male who presents dizzy and drowsy, airways patent. He has no cyanosis. Vital signs are within normal limits. His Glasgow Coma Scale is E3M6V5. I actually don't know that uh, notation. No, it's uh, eyes, verbal, oh, and yeah. Uh, movement. Yeah, yeah. So his Glasgow Coma Scale is E3M6V5. Pupillary light reaction, symmetric, uh, but his pupils are constricted. His skin is dry. A routine urine toxicology screen is negative for benzos, barbiturates, cocaine, opiates, and methamphetamine. And our question here is, which of the following is the most appropriate next best step in the management of this patient? So it should be the best next step, not the next best step. <laughs> so yeah, basically dizzy, drowsy, normal vital signs. Okay. And we've got A is IV naloxone. B is repeat the routine urine toxicology screen four hours later. C is request a broader screening for opioids by GCMS or LCMS. Or D, request screening for benzodiazepines. Also not the, uh, as I read this, the best um, written question, but... Uh, sure, but I think that it's, it's good. So anytime that they give you physical findings, what they're doing is giving you the answer. So if you know your toxidromes, you should be able to, to look at this and they say his pupils are constricted. Boom. Opiates, right? And, and so at this point, we recognize that it's, it, it's an opioid. And, and it's going to be that easy on these tests. I mean, it's set up so that there's one thing. Benzos do not affect the pupils. Um, you could have this for benzos, but they're giving you the, the, the kick point, which is going to be they have constricted pupils. And so with that, the answer would be, well, they were negative for opioids. And the answer is understanding opioid toxicology means that the opioid screen, the basic one, only checks ultimately for morphine derivatives. And so um, six-monoacetylmorphine, which is heroin, and then, uh, and then just morphine itself. So as we, as we look at that, and you can get overlap with some, but it always misses things like fentanyl. So the basic one misses fentanyl and methadone and buprenorphine. Um, so uh, if you ask for an expanded opioid evaluation through um, gas chromatograph or liquid chromatography, what that does is it allows for them to take the, uh, the urine and then expand out all of the chemicals in that so that we can identify the specific molecular weight and then assign that molecular weight to known values for um, the chemicals that are there. And that molecular weight would come across for either fentanyl or methadone. Um, and, uh, and those are things that you would miss if you hadn't done the expanded opioid evaluation. And so my answer would be that to do the uh, expanded uh, LCMS liquid uh, chromatograph mass spectrometer or GC mass spec um, on the other side. And, and typically they, they do LC-MS-MS, uh, which is, a, it just allows them to differentiate it further now, but the, uh, and then there's a time of flight methodology. There, there are a bunch of different ways you can look at it toxicologically, but that would be the answer. All right. And uh, actually, yes, that, that is keyed correctly on, on this Staparol's question. Cress, request a broader screening for opioids by GCMS or LCMS. So number one, you're saying these uh, in review, the rapid screens are going to pick up likely use of heroin, morphine, 
codeine, but not fentanyl, buprenorphine, methadone, oxycodone, hydrocodone? What? Uh, well, some, it depends on which one. You have to look at the actual sheet. But if you look at the chemical structure of opioids. So you remember in pharmacology when they showed you pictures of chemical structures and you're like, I don't need to know this crap. I just need to know what to prescribe. The answer is you actually kind of need to know this crap. Um, and so if you look at the structure of fentanyl, it is completely different than the chemical structure of morphine, of uh, codeine, which is a which is a, a pre-molecule or heroin. You know, heroin, morphine, and that, and oxycodone, they basically, all they have are little hydroxyl groups that are a little bit different from each of them, but you, you have the same central axis molecule. What that means is that an antibody toward one will most likely pick up the other. But fentanyl looks very different, methadone looks very different, and buprenorphine looks very different. And so I would say for those listening, go get your pharmacology book and actually look at those structures and you will recognize how obvious it is that a tox screen would not pick those up. That, actually, that sounds like a great uh, exercise. Other question about urine drug screens in general. All right, so this case is not, it's not clear to me what the clinical value would be uh, or what we're actually trying to manage in this patient. But um, can you speak to the idea of urine drug screens as a kind of, ha got you? Because a lot of times it's like, what I can think of now a number of different issues. Number one, oh yeah, that patient admitted to using um, heroin, but also was positive for methamphetamine, barbiturates, and cocaine. When in fact, like if you have tons of patients doing this, my guess is there's a huge cauldron yeah. and whoever's making this shit, it puts it all in like today we're making heroin, uh, a, you know, stir, repeat, package. Yeah. Today we're making cocaine. They put it all in. So there's probably some contaminants. I, I buy that. That It's like, I mean, simple. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of stuff. Yeah. You know, there are antibiotics. There are fillers on purpose. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's crazy. But um, yeah, yeah. Just lay it out. So here's the big piece. And I said it earlier, right? So the biggest piece on this is if you ascribe intent to your patient, you've already started doing the wrong thing. If, because if you use urine drug screens to get them, you've ascribed intent. They're trying to get one over on you. They're just trying to get, you know, get me to do something I didn't want. So just remember this. This is ego again. They don't give one crap about you. You do not rent any space in their head when they go home. You are a transient member in their life unless you help them. At that point, you actually become a positive interaction with them and a memory and someone that they don't want to disappoint. And the way that you do that is that you say, look, uh, for this patient who was drowsy and dizzy um, and your drug screen was negative, you go, you know, your original initial drug screen was negative, but the signs and symptoms are really concerning for having another opioid there. So I think I might want to give you a medication called naloxone. But if I give it, it could put you into withdrawal and I don't want to make you feel bad. So if I knew kind of what was in your system, um, we could make a better decision about what our next steps are. And so what do you think? And about half the time, they'll just tell you. If you're just honest with them, they'll be honest with you. And then the other piece would be, and you'll hear this over and over again in residency, is what, if you know what it is, how is that test going to help you? Like, is that test going to be valuable to you in any way? You know it's an opioid, um, you know, at some level. So what you want to know is when they used it, did they use it right before they walked in and it's, it hasn't peaked yet? So you just need to keep an eye on them. Or is this somebody who took grandma's Tylenol three or whatever, you know, it doesn't at the end of the day necessarily matter. So would I order a GCMS on this person 
No, because it's not a test that's going to change my pathway. I'm going to have a conversation with him. I'm going to get as much information as I would from a GCMS. And, uh, and then we're going to move forward with therapeutically intervening on that person. Yeah. All right. Last one, because I know you got to get going um, and somewhat related. So in this one, we have a 17-year-old female. She comes to the ED unresponsive. She's got pallor, pinpoint pupils, a respiratory rate of eight breaths per minute, and track marks in the left antecubital fossa. Bag valve mask ventilations initiated while IV access is obtained. Her bedside blood glucose is 132. She is given naloxone intravenously and respiratory rate increases to normal. The patient's mental status improves and she becomes responsive. 20 minutes after the naloxone is administered, she says, I want to peace out. She requests discharge. So which of the following is the uh, best next step in the management of this patient? Is it A, observe her in the emergency room until at least one half-life of morphine is passed? B, demand that she submit to a drug screening before she leaves to check for opiates other than heroin? C, have the medicine service admit her for 23-hour observation and as-needed doses of IV naloxone? or D, observe her in the emergency room until at least one half-life of diacetylmorphine has passed. Whew, this question would not be fun to get if you're like a, a taking step one, I don't think. Um, but I think this might help us think uh, a little more about testing. So what, what would you do if these were the only four options you had, Dr. Waller? <laughs> I would quit that hospital um, if they were the only four <laughs> options I had. But um, the, the question comes down to if they're telling you what they have, and if they give you more than one clue, remember on the last question we talked about, I have constricted pupils, and that was the clue to the answer. Um, this one is giving you constricted pupils and track marks. So they're expecting what they call a second level answer on this. And it's not going to be, so opioids is not going to be the answer, right? It's going to be something more specific about opioids because they've made it so um, overt. So I can't get in the head of the question writer on this, but a half-life of diacetylmorphine is uh, uh, basically equivalent to that of, of morphine. It's a little shorter than that. But at, at the same time, she doesn't want to stay, so you can't really force her because she's awake and alert. And so legally, it's, it's, it's sketchy uh, to force them. But let's say she's willing. Um, I think what they were trying to get at is she has all the signs and symptoms of injecting, which is most likely heroin, but morphine has a longer um, half-life uh, than heroin. So you want to go with whatever the longest half-life is. So for this one, I would pick morphine. I bet you they're baiting and they're going to pick diacetylmorphine, but, the, uh, but I would pick morphine uh, because it has the longer half-life and I would get them to stay and, and monitor that. <laughs> yep. And uh, that was an excellent way to break that down. And and I will say of the many guests we've had on this show, very few have been willing to submit to the, um, you know, this uh, blind questioning. A lot of times I'll send and have them review questions beforehand so that we can ensure that... Sissies. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Come on. Um, grow a pair. But, um, yeah. but thank you for submitting to that. And 
end, um, you'll be happy to know if uh, you took step one today, you would have scored like a 280. Yeah. So, uh, it, even though the numbers don't matter anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess they don't matter. So, But Dr. Waller, thank you so much for your time and what you're doing in advocacy for patients with addiction and uh, for the uh, specialty of addiction medicine itself. We would love to have you back anytime and uh, have a good day. Keep fighting the fight. Yeah, you as well. Thanks, uh, thanks there, Dr. Beeman. I appreciate it. And, uh, and I'm happy to jump back on. I mean, education is what I basically do for a living. And uh, so I, I enjoy this aspect of it and happy to do it. And for those listening, good luck. Work hard. It is worth it. 100%. Mm-hmm.